There are two kinds of people in the world. People who cover their faces with pillows while they watch scary movies, and those of us who inch closer to the screen, the scarier the movie gets. We've all heard the dime store psychology. Horror movies, claim the professionals, satiate our primitive need for safe thrills. We all know there's no Freddy Krueger, no malevolent clown in the street drains, no evil spirit in your TV about to do a freaky deaky jerky crawl into your living room. These frights, as effective as they are, are just the products of the imaginations of skilled, if not deliciously morbid, writers' imaginations. And so we pop our popcorn and turn off the lights, and we laugh at the fools who investigate noises in the basement or in the attic, when it's quite obvious that that is exactly where death waits. We laugh at friends complaining of nightmares, smugly reminding them it's all just Hollywood hooey. But what if it isn't? What if the horror on the screen is simply a retelling of horrors perpetrated in real life? Worse, what if they could actually happen again to you? In this final installment of my six-part Halloween celebration, I'll tell you about the real events that inspired some of Hollywood's most terrifying feature films. And then we'll see just how brave you really are. Whether it's history, crime, or legend, Stephanie Hoover has that story. Once upon a time, a serial killer inspired a horror movie that inspired a serial killer who became the basis for a horror movie. Just a twisted fairy tale, right? Nope. This actually happened. 2016 marked the 20th anniversary of the groundbreaking horror flick, Scream. The movie not only helped launch the film company Miramax, it also single-handedly resuscitated a dying genre in a way no one thought possible. It was a horror movie that satirized horror movies while simultaneously terrifying audiences. Even more fascinating, though, is how the idea for that movie was born. In 1983, William Peter Blatty released the novel Legion. It was the third book in what is now known as his Holy Trilogy and his vision of the final sequel to his blockbuster, The Exorcist. Though the plot offered absolutely no relationship to the previous films, Legion became a movie called The Exorcist Three. Blatty himself wrote and produced it. In The Exorcist 3, Blatty's killer-slash-demon is named the Gemini Killer. Blatty based this name on a real-life monster, San Francisco's Zodiac Killer, who terrorized Northern California in the 1970s. The Exorcist 3 was released in August of 1990. One Gainesville, Florida resident who saw the film was 36-year-old Daniel Harold Rowling. Days later, the bodies of two University of Florida female college freshmen were found in their apartment, stabbed and mutilated. The next evening, the body of 18-year-old police clerk Krista Hoyt was also discovered. 
Her severed head had been placed on a bookshelf, which seemed to mimic a scene from The Exorcist Three, in which a priest is decapitated in a church. Two days after Hoyt's murder, two more college roommates were found dead, stabbed, and mutilated. As fate would have it, Daniel Rawling was not initially arrested for these murders, but rather for a bank robbery. While investigating his woodland campsite, police found evidence that linked him to the killings. He soon confessed to the five Gainesville murders, but his DNA held one more surprise. It also proved he'd slaughtered a family of three in his hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana, a year previously. In 1994, a young screenwriter named Kevin Williamson was home watching a news special detailing Rawlings' vicious Gainesville murders. In the midst of the program, he happened to notice that one of the living room windows was open, something he didn't remember doing. Fueled by the Rawlings story, the open window sparked fears of an intruder, which in turn triggered an 18-page movie treatment about a young woman alone in a house, taunted and killed by a murderer wearing a mask. That treatment became the movie Scream. Scream released on December 22, 1996. It grossed $173 million, more than 10 times what it cost to make. And it would never have happened had it not been for the Zodiac Killer, who helped inspire The Exorcist Three which prompted the psychopath Daniel Harold Rawling to kill five students in Gainesville, Florida. In 1978, independent film producer Erwin Yablons had the idea to create a horror movie about babysitters being stalked by a psychotic killer. He asked 29-year-old director and writer John Carpenter to bring this cinematic vision to theaters for the paltry sum of $300,000. The cast and crew had 20 days to shoot the film. To keep it on time and within budget, it was decided that all of the action would happen on one night. Halloween, a film title that astoundingly had never before been used. While the concept of the lunatic escaping the asylum was certainly not originated by Carpenter, there is a real-life connection between him and the remorseless escaped mental patient Michael Myers. While in college, as part of a class in human psychology, Carpenter visited a psychiatric hospital. During that visit, he noticed a 15-year-old patient sitting silently, staring at nothing. Carpenter could sense a malignancy in the child, and it was a feeling he never forgot. When it came time to write the character of the relentless killer in Halloween, the boy's eyes became the fiend's most vivid trait. In fact, the movie's hero, Dr. Sam Loomis, describes them exactly as John Carpenter remembered, the blackest eyes he'd ever seen. While opening weekend returns suggested Halloween would be a box office bomb, the threat of failure was fleeting. Word of mouth, particularly among college students, drove the film's success. The small independent horror film, shot in less than a month, grossed $70 million in its initial release. It was, and for the next 12 years, would remain the most successful 
independently produced movie ever made. A year after Laurie Strode survived Halloween, Columbia Pictures released its entry in the Let's Terrify the Babysitter genre, its title, When a Stranger Calls. The premise is effectively simple. After putting the children in her care to bed, the babysitter, Jill Johnson, receives a phone call. A man asks, have you checked the children? In true horror plot fashion, Jill writes the call off as a practical joke, but the calls keep coming and Jill finally contacts the police. They trace the caller only to discover a shocking fact. He's actually inside the house. Now, with all of these movies about babysitters as prey, you might think this seemingly innocuous occupation has an outsized body count. It doesn't, and in fact, thousands of babysitters arrive safely back home every weekend. So we must ask ourselves, what is it about tormenting the babysitter that children and movie audiences find so irresistible? Sadly, though, there is one case that ended in murder, and it made national headlines. By all accounts, Jeanette Chrisman was the perfect daughter and, by extension, perfect babysitter. Active in her church, in March of 1950, Jeanette was saving for a new outfit for Easter service. That's why the 13-year-old chose to forego a school dance in favor of a babysitting gig for her regular clients, Ed and Ann Romack. The Romacks lived in an isolated home just outside the Columbus, Missouri city limits. March 18th was a cold night and a spring storm delivered prodigious amounts of thunder and sleet. Nonetheless, Ed and his wife decided to keep their plans to attend a bridge party. But before they left, Ed did something I find to be a bit, well, odd. He showed young Jeanette how to load and fire the shotgun he had propped beside the front door. He also warned the teenager that should anyone come knocking, she was to turn on the porch light and look out the living room blinds before answering the door. About 10.35 that evening, police received a phone call. The voice was female, that much they knew, and the panic was evident. Come quick, was all she said before the line went dead. An hour or so later, the storm was worsening and Anne called home to make sure all was well. The line was busy and she couldn't get through. Two hours later, the Romax finally returned home. As they approached the house, they noticed the porch light was on and the blinds were open as if Jeanette had been looking out. The front door was unlocked and they hurried inside to find the teenager lying on the floor dead. Her legs were stretched apart and it was obvious she'd suffered some kind of sexual assault there were wounds on her head, and in a final act of depravity, the murderer had cut the cord from the family's iron and wrapped it around her neck. The child she was watching was thankfully unharmed. Bloody fingerprints dotted the walls in the kitchen at the rear of the home where someone had broken a window. These prints continued down the hallway and into the living room where Jeanette was found. Footprints were found outside the broken window in the heavy accumulation of sleet. Interestingly, though, that shotgun that Ed taught Jeanette to load and fire 
was propped right where he'd left it, inside the front door. News of Jeanette's rape and murder found its way into newspapers across the country, most using some form of a headline that read, Sex Fiend Strangles Teenage Babysitter. Police tried tracking the killer with bloodhounds, but the dog lost his trail not far from the Romac home. For many people of the town, though, Jeanette's case echoed an incident that occurred several years before when a college student was also found raped and murdered, an appliance cord tied tightly around her throat. There was one obvious suspect in Jeanette's murder, a friend of Ed Romack's named Robert Mueller. Mueller had a reputation for bold, unwanted advances, even Anne Romack said that, and Ed recalled his friend making lewd comments about Jeanette's mature build. Is that why Ed taught Jeanette how to use the rifle? Did he suspect Robert might come prowling around? And if so, why in the world did he leave her and his infant son in that house alone? Mueller was questioned at length by the police, and for good reason. He knew Jeanette would be alone in the Romax home on the night of her murder because he, too, had asked her to babysit. But when asked to take a polygraph, he did so without hesitation and passed. The real case of this murdered babysitter was never solved. But it seems to have implanted itself in the minds of screenwriters whose dark and fertile imaginations gave it a place to germinate and take root. Whether it's Sidney Prescott, Laurie Strode, or Jill Johnson, you're actually reliving a tiny bit of the terror Jeanette Chrisman felt in her last moments, and you're telling yourself it's all just harmless fiction. So the next time you watch your favorite scary movie, remember the real serial killer who inspired Scream, or the soulless child that became Michael Myers, or the babysitter who actually did check the children, but died anyway. And then ask yourself, did you open the door to the cellar? Or was it like that when the movie started? Well, that's my story about the true events that inspired some of Hollywood's scariest movies, and the final entry in my six-part celebration of the Halloween season. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you like Stephanie Hoover Has That Story, please tell your friends on social media, subscribe, or leave a kind review. Until next time, this is Stephanie wishing you a safe and happy Halloween.